Mother's Day looks a lot different this year. <sighs> Mommy needs a quarantine. And our moms may be spending a lot of time with their kids right now. A lot. Like, so, so much time. And even though they love their kids to the moon and back, Mommy, where are you going? Sometimes moms need a little alone time. Mommy! You know, to recharge. Go talk to Daddy. Mommy! Where are you? But no matter what's happening in the world, their favorite way to spend time is with their family. In good times, in hard times. Mom! Hi. You're breaking everything! In uncertain times. Thank you, Mom, for making time for us every single day. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I ask that you would watch over us as we go to bed and rest, that you'd speak to us in Bible stories and speak to us in... Um... And welcome to Creekside Church on Mother's Day. We're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning, and I want to extend a special welcome and thank you to all of our mothers. As you've seen in this video, they're overworked and underappreciated oftentimes, and so we're just grateful that you're worshiping with us this morning. Several things that I want to call to your attention as we gather. First of all, as is our practice every Sunday at the end of the service, I'll be leading you in communion. So if you don't have the stuff ready or you want to go get it ready or maybe you'll wait and go into the kitchen afterwards, that's fine. However you want to do it, we hope that you'll be able to join us for that. I want to remind you, if you're part of a regular church family, that the Packers, Alec and Annie, are expecting a baby boy due in July. And so we're having a, a shower for them. If you have gifts, you want to drop them off here at the church, please contact Megan so you know when to come in. But if not, you can have them mailed directly to the Packers. That's fine. We want to thank you as a Creekside Church family for all the funds and hard work that you gave towards our lighting project. It's been completed and actually under budget, which is amazing. So we thank all of our deacons and the work they went to and everybody who had a part and all who contributed. We have a mission trip coming up end of September and first part of October uh, going to Haiti. At least that's the plan right now. We don't know that that's going to change. Could, but we're pressing ahead as if it's going to happen. And so if you're interested in being a part of that team, which is a work projects and also some evangelism and evangelism and things, please contact Norb or Karen Metzler. That would be appreciated. And next week, big news is we're planning the initial phase of a partial reopening here at Creekside Church. And so in light of that, I just want you to watch this little video that gives the details and you can go to our website later. Great. Thanks, Mike, and thanks, Ryan. Thanks for all the work that you've done, all the work that a lot of people have done to 
take us through this time. I want to remind you that we will be online still, so that'll be good for those who feel that they should still stay at home. also want to thank a special group of guys that are kind of the reopening task force. They've done a lot of work behind the scenes, and you'll hear more stuff or see more stuff online. We've got a whole pamphlet that's been put together on explaining everything, so if you didn't get it all from the video, that's fine. You'll be able to check it out online, and we'll be emailing some stuff out to people. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact the office here at the church, and we'd be glad to walk you through it. So let's open our time with prayer this morning. Father, as we gather on this Mother's Day, I just thank you for my own mother. I thank you for the mother of our children, my children, and I thank you for all the mothers in the world and those that we hold dear. I pray that they might feel special today. I ask that you would use us in a mighty way to encourage them and help us never to take lightly now we will not be the work out that they do leaders. and all that they've done and all that they're continuing to do for us. And I also pray, Father, for some who may not know their mom, some who are longing to be moms and yet not able to be. I pray for those who've had mothers that have severely disappointed them and ask that you'd comfort and encourage and strengthen them. Father, I know that special days like Christmas and Mother's Day and Father's Day can be painful times. I pray that these people, all of us, even the mothers and those of us who have good mothers, would be encouraged to look to Christ the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that uh, was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, that we might find our completeness and wholeness in you. That's easy to say, Father, but I pray that that would be true in our hearts. And now as we take some time to look into your word, I ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds that we might behold as the psalmist prays wonderful truths from your law, not just to learn about them, Father, but in this text and the text we've been walking through to actually incarnate these truths into our lives that the kingdom righteousness might be that which is manifest through kingdom saints. That the character of the kingdom would be translated into the conduct of those who are in the kingdom and those who don't know you who are outside of the kingdom, Father, that they might come to know the King of kings and Lord of lords we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, the story is told of a Scottish reformer named George Weishart. George Weishart was sentenced to execution because he was seen as a heretic from the religious establishment. At his execution, his executioner said to him, I beg you that you would forgive me for I'm not responsible for your death. I'm not guilty of your death. Weishart motioned to him to come towards him and the executioner came to Weishart and then Weishart leaned over and kissed him on the cheek and he says, take that as a token that I forgive you. What a beautiful picture and a true story of one of the most difficult biblical exhortations, biblical commands in all of Scripture. That is to Love our enemy. This is the most challenging and most convicting admonition that Jesus gave, or may, at least one of them. Maybe it's not the most, but it is one of them. You see, our fallen nature kind of rebels against that thought. Our fallen nature says, hey, this is an offensive thing to think that I would have to love my enemy. It's unfair. It's impossible anyway. 
So we try to excuse it. We try to redefine it. We try to explain it away. Or maybe we just ignore it altogether. But it's a command that we need to understand. I need to understand it. And not just in my head, but I need to apply it. And we all need to apply it, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so here we have, in the sixth and final illustration Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, contrasting the faulty understanding of the scribes and Pharisees with the superior righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus advocates this command. And in it, he reveals to us that loving our enemies is not just something for the religious elite, but it's something God calls every follower of Christ to live out in their daily experience. It's an expectation for every believer. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 or to your device, find it in your, in your device or your Bible. And we're going to read through verses 43 through 48 of chapter 5. And in this text, Jesus contrasts two approaches to dealing with our enemies in an effort to convince us that kingdom righteousness means loving our enemies. That's what he said. That's what he meant. I'm in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43, and I'll read the text. I hope you'll listen along and read along with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends the rain, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus has two approaches to the enemy. And in these approaches, he reveals to us that loving our enemies is not something that's optional. It's something we're commanded. First of all, I want you to see in verse 43 the corrupt way of treating our enemies. Verse 43, again, I'll say, I'll read it. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your enemies, love your neighbors, I'm sorry, and hate your enemies. Well, this is what the Pharisees and the scribes taught, but it was a faulty teaching. It was faulty in two regards. It had two flaws. First of all, it was a restriction on love. What do I mean by that? Notice how they quote Leviticus 19.18, but they don't quote the whole verse. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall, not, you shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear grudge against the sons of the people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what they did, it's only a partial quote. The intentionally let off as yourself. These sanctimonious, self-righteous snobs, they couldn't even imagine that anybody would be worthy of being loved as much as they were. No. So they excluded as yourself from the command. And then they redefined neighbor. So that a neighbor, you know, they redefined it in really narrow terms. So that they meant only somebody like themselves and nobody else, just like them. So this redefinition of neighbor, this exclusion of loving them as ourself, protected their privileged status. 
and justified their selfishness. Now, maybe that's a little foggy, but let's just think about ourselves. So do a little gut check, a little reality check. Do I restrict this command to love my neighbor to those who are just like me? So my neighbor is really just somebody like me. Am I guilty of despising those who, they don't dress, they don't talk, they don't look, they don't vote, and they don't live like me. You know, people who are just different, and their difference I somehow see as a black mark. Think about it. This past week, there were two different people in Texas who were arrested because they, as business owners, kept their businesses open in defiance of the, the order that was given by the governor. The first one is a gal by the name of Shelley Luther, and she owns a salon in Dallas. And I've read and seen so many people in support of her and all the things that she was doing. They're like, yeah, this girl is go girl, you know, supporting her in her rebellion, actually. But now then there's another person, Gabriella Ellison, and she's the owner of Big Daddy's Bar, also in Texas. I didn't hear anything about people. So what's our perspective? Is one of them seen as an ally and the other one as an adversary? Someone that one is my neighbor and the other one, well, not so much. See, that's the question we have. Leviticus 19.18 teaches the principle of sympathetic concern for our fellow human beings. That's reinforced throughout the scripture. Neighbor was anyone in need that was in our proximity. Anyone around us that was definitely in need that we encountered in our daily life. It could be a fellow countryman. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. Or even an enemy, if we look at Exodus 23, 4 through 5. So the broad definition of neighbor is validated most familiarly with, to us at least, in the Good Samaritan story. So Jesus said, who was a neighbor to the man? You know the story, maybe you don't know the story, but the story about all the religious leaders who rejected, who ignored the person who had been hurt along the way, and then a Samaritan of all people, the people, one of the people that the Israelites despised, he came along and helped the person. Who's the neighbor to the man? Well, illustrating that our neighbor is anyone around us that happens to be in need, would include our enemies. There's a second flaw in the, era, in the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees thinking with regard to treating our enemies, and that was an expansion of hate. Not only did they restrict love, but they expanded hate. And we did this by saying, and hate your enemies, which you can search through the entire Old Testament law. You'll never see that wording anywhere. It's not a quote from anywhere in the Old Testament, but it's a loose interpretation of the Old Testament record that justified hatred of anyone who was not to their liking. So, they didn't like tax collectors or gatherers, which, understandably, these were people of their own race and their own families and own people who were traders who actually were collecting taxes from the Romans at profit. They didn't like the Gentiles. These people were considered dogs. They were considered the nations. They were considered anathema to the, to the Jewish people, so they didn't like them either. But listen, they didn't like them, 
So they said, hey, we don't like commoners, adulterers. Isn't it fascinating that the very people that the scribes and the Pharisees decided they would hate are the very people that Jesus hung out with? (laughs) Those are the people he was around. Just this past week, we celebrated the anniversary, 75th anniversary of VE Day, victory in Europe, World War II. And during World War II, the Nazis hated the Jewish people. They were taught to hate the Jewish people. I would submit to you that Christianity never teaches that we are to hate people. That we as individuals are not to hate other individual people. The religious hatred is the reason or what fueled the bombings in Sri Lanka. On Easter Sunday morning in 2019, three churches were bombed and some hotels were bombed. It was religious hatred, but it wasn't Christian religious hatred towards anybody. We are not called to do that. Now, the Old Testament record, hey, let's be honest. The Old Testament record does call for God's people to take out vengeance upon God's enemies. When they conquered the promised land, they went into Canaan. They were supposed to take care of the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites and all those Ites people, I may not even have included all of them correctly, but in Joshua chapter 3 verse 10, they were called to the destruction of Ammon and Moab across the Jordan River. All of the imprecatory psalms are calling down God's wrath on God's enemies. So when God's people and God's honor is at stake in 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 a broader sense, then there is punishment that's brought upon those who are against God. God will punish them. But the scripture nowhere nowhere teaches that I as an individual Christian or you as an individual Christian are justified in hating anybody. No. Scripture teaches us to love our enemies. One of the places we probably wouldn't look would be in the book of Job. Because Job's detractors were making fun of him. But in defense, Job says of himself, it it says in, in, in Job chapter 31, that when his enemies were in trouble, he didn't delight in their hardship. He didn't desire their hurt. No, he sought to help them. That's the essence of what it means to love our enemy. As the very person who is hostile towards us, we are gentle and kind and gracious and encouraging to them. David treated his enemies with, with fairness. And he preserved the life of Saul. Some of you remember the story when Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. David and his men were hiding in there. And his men thought, aha, this is God delivering your enemy into your hands. And what did David do? He just cut off a little bit of Saul's robe. Still not sure how all that went down, but uh, he, he cut off a portion of his robe. I don't know how you, he must have had a really sharp knife or sword. Anyhow, he Let Saul go out, and then he went out after him and said, Hey, you were here. I see this swath of your robe. I've got, I had you. And he didn't take the life of his enemies. Far be it for me to raise up against the Lord's anointed, he said. God's love is to be balanced with his justice. The scribes and Pharisees did not balance anything. They redefined the Old Testament, love your neighbor, Oh, that's fine, and hate your enemy, but they didn't love their neighbor as themselves, and they defined their enemy as anybody unlike them. The caution, I think, for us this morning is that we could do the same thing really easily. The prejudicial application of justice trampled God's 
principle of love. John MacArthur in his commentary I think is right when he says nowhere did their humanistic self-centered system of religion differ more from God's divine standards than in the matter of love. Their humanistic self-centered system of religion differ more from God's standards than in the matter of love. There was a corrupt treatment of our enemies. Now The rest of the text articulates Jesus' perspective, which is the correct way of treating our enemies. And there are three road signs that direct us down a path of loving our enemies. First of all, in the text, in verse 44, we see the command to love our enemies. But I say unto you. What's fascinating is literally in the Greek it says, I but say to you. So the I is emphatic. Jesus speaking authoritatively. His words have authority and are in contrast to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, in contrast to the teaching of the self-serving, proud, and judgmental, and heartless hypocrites. They were masquerading as religious experts, but they were actually hypocrites. They say, but I say. Some of you have maybe children that are in school, elementary or grade school or high school some of you have college students some of you have grandchildren some of you don't have children yet but maybe you will and you might say to them you have heard it said which is very prevalent in our day there is no such thing as absolute truth which is basically what's being told our kids from the time they enter into public school for sure until they graduate from whatever level of school they graduate there is no absolute truth you say but I say to you That's not true. Or you could say, then ask, is that true? When the person says, there is no absolute truth. Is that true? Well, if there is no absolute truth, then to say that there is no absolute truth can't be true. What's authoritative? Jesus says, I have the authority. Love, in this context, is not a feeling which in most cases, especially in the use of the word agape, it has to do with a commitment. It's action. See, God is love. We learn this from 1 John chapter 4. Several verses in there, but verse 16 says that God is love. And his love is demonstrated in an unmerited favor. It is him selflessly, graciously giving to those who don't deserve it. That's, That's what love is. And so I want you to look at a series of verses that articulate the way it is particularly that God has demonstrated his love to his enemies. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love. Now I'm quoting my own thing, so you can read it on the screen. But herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice, satisfying God's wrath against sin. John 3.16, you're all familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. So God loved us, sent his son as a propitiation, as a atoning sacrifice. He loved us so that whoever, he sent his son so whoever believes in him would not perish. Then Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love. See, each one of these verses, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ is the epitome of enemy love. 
It's the epitome of loving your enemies. Because it is that Christ's words on the cross revealed this great love. He was on the cross and one of the people being crucified next to him said, why don't you save us and yourselves, or, or, yourself with us? And the other one said, forgive me. I'm sorry. And Jesus says to the one who said, I'm sorry. He says to, well, he actually told the other guy, be quiet. Don't you know that we deserve this condemnation? And Jesus said to the one, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he says, Forgive them, Father, the people who were crucifying. Jesus said to those who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You can read it in Luke chapter 23. You see, then through his works on the cross, not only his words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do, and then his works on the cross was what I just articulated in these verses, that Christ died for us. You see, the creator, king, and judge of the universe looked down upon fallen human beings, sinful, rebellious human beings, who deserve only his wrath, and they, he loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross, sacrificed his son as the payment for our sin, so that everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus would be forgiven and not subject to his wrath. We were rebellious in our hearts and always are in our hearts rebellious towards God. And he died in our, sent his son to die in our place. I ask you this morning, have you received the gift of love from God? Have you trusted in the death of Christ as the payment for the sin, payment for sin that you deserve so that your Sin is placed upon Christ on the cross in a spiritual sense. And he died in your place and that his righteousness is placed upon you so that you are righteous in the eyes of God. Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? And if you haven't, this is the demonstration of enemy love because Christ loved you as an enemy. He loved me when I was an enemy of his. And he died in my place so that I could live. And if you're here this morning, if you haven't done that, I, I challenge you to put your trust, your faith in Christ today. And if you have, guess what? God expects from us what he's extended to us. That is to love our enemies. And we can only give what we possess. Only believers can love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 and 8. Love your enemies is a commitment to graciously seek the welfare of those with whom we are personally at odds. They don't like us and perhaps we don't like them. We're in conflict or disagreement and we seek their own, their good as we would seek our own. I'm reminded of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Some of you know that story where Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. At the end, they're all reunited, Joseph and his brothers and his father, and his father passes away, and then his brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to get revenge. And Joseph says to his brothers in Exodus 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph extended this generosity, this grace, this mercy towards his brothers that they didn't deserve. 
And the text tells us in verse 44 that we extend love, first of all, by praying for those who persecute us. Spurgeon said this, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Oh, you think about it. It's really hard to despise and hate somebody that we're praying for. I suppose it's possible, but if we're really praying generally, and we're not asking, I think the, the, the call to prayer here is not a call for their God to crush them like a bug, you know, boom, I want to crush you like a bug. No, it's a call, a prayer to God that, that he would convict them, that he would change them, that he would draw them to himself and convert them, that they would become one of God's children, that we in our hearts would begin to care for them as a, love, as a person who loves them, even though they don't like us or they hate us. And the only suitable incentive for such a prayer, the only suitable incentive for praying for our enemies, those who persecute us, is to see them, not as the enemy, but as victims of the enemy. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, we talked about Blessed are those who mourn, mourn over our own sin, and mourn over the sins of others because we see them not as the enemy, but we see them as victims of the enemy, destined for eternal destruction, and our desire is that they would be delivered from it. <laughs> Their rebellion is no different than our rebellion. Maybe it's different in form, but its essence is the same. It's a rebellion against God. And that was the rebellion that, sent, that caused God to send Jesus to die on the cross. Christ's concern surpassed his self-interest. And that's what he expects of his children, God does. That our concern for the loss would overrule our own self-interest. We pray for our persecutors. Now think about it. Who are those who are your persecutors? Some of you, it's people in your own family. Some of you, it's people in your own church, your own peer group, your school. Maybe it's at work. Sometimes it's community people, people in the community, whether it's a business owner or maybe it's somebody in government. Maybe it's persecutors in our country. Do we pray for them or are we just flying off the handle, just going to get our pound of flesh? Through prayer, we reach the lost and and restore relationships within the body. That's the, the first road sign, is the command. Secondly, the consequence. If you look at the per, first part of verse 45, in order that, now the New American Standard translates this, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's better, if I, th I think, if we would understand it, that we read it in order that you might show yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because here's the deal. Love for our enemies doesn't cause us to become the children of God. It only confirms that we are the children of God. I'll say that again. Love for our enemies doesn't cause us to become God's children. It confirms that we are God's children. Some of you are fans of one of the state universities. Okay, So if, 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 if I were a Iowa State shirt or I wear a UNI shirt or I wear a Iowa Hawkeye shirt that doesn't cause me to be a fan it confirms that I am it confirms that I'm a supporter of that program or whatever it doesn't confirm that I am it doesn't cause me to be it 
God is love. And the greatest evidence that we are his children is that we love. We love God. That's the greatest commandment. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We love our neighbor. Well, that's the second greatest command. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to love each other, John 13, 34. We're supposed to love our enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Now, there's two reasons that loving our enemies marks us out as God's children from the text. First of all, when we love our enemies, we demonstrate our likeness to the Father. You look at verse 45. He says, In order that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the evil or the unrighteous and the good and the righteous. This is what theologians call common grace. I want you to look at a passage of Scripture in Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. And uh, in, in, this, in these verses, we see the eyes of, of all look to you. That's the eyes of all, all humanity. And you give them, all of humanity, their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. All that we have comes from God. Every blessing we have is from God. Every ability that we have is from God. Every opportunity that we have comes from God. You see, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, not because of our worth, not because we were desirable, not because we were admirable, not because we were such wonderful people, but in spite of our wickedness, as the greatest example of enemy love. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 reveals the essence of what God has done. And in summary, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Now, does that sound like a friend? Hostile, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet now he reconciled you in his fleshly body, that is, through the death of Christ, through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Christ lovingly came to deliver us from our condemnation as those who are hostile to God. As God's children, can we do less? Are we called to do less than what God has done for us in Christ? No, we're not. Like our Heavenly Father, we love our enemies regardless of how they treat us because we see in them the tremendous need for them to be reconciled to God in the same way that we were reconciled, to get the undeserved deliverance from God that we got. A few weeks ago, when Kyle was preaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, he mentioned this case that is recent on people's minds, at least, of this former police officer, Amber Geiger, who shot... Uh, and killed uh, another a man. And during her sentencing, the man's brother named Brant Jean, Brant Jean extended his forgiveness. And he said that he and his brother who was deceased would want nothing more th- than the best for her. He said, I love you. He said, I want the best for you. And the very best for you would be that you would be in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And I forgive you. And then he asked if he could hug her. He asked the judge, can I get up and hug this woman and let her know that she's forgiven? 
This is, and I don't know about you, but this was not blown out all over proportion, but it's, it's there. It's an example of what it means to love our enemies as those who have been forgiven. We must be free from concern for ourselves in order to express this kind of love. See, the reconciling love we have experienced as God's enemies is the kind of love that we're supposed to express to our enemies as a reflection of God's love. So we demonstrate that we're God's children when we love our enemies. Secondly, we differentiate ourselves from the world. Now, if you look in the text, it says in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And I say to you, greet your brothers. If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So the tax gatherers, these were the people that uh, the Jewish religious leaders definitely despised. They were traitors, worked for Rome. The Gentiles, these are people that were despised by, by the scribes and the Pharisees. And what does Jesus do? He says, oh, you scribes and Pharisees, look, your way of dealing with people, your way of loving is just about the same as the tax gatherers and the Gentiles. That's where you're at. So the people you despise the most are the people you mimic when it comes to loving people. Uh, I think we should do better than that. Now, that's my paraphrase, but that's what Jesus... What do you do more than they? You see, kingdom righteousness excels the conduct of the religious legalists who mimic the pagans. Kingdom righteousness goes beyond that. He says, what do you do more than others? Verse 47, it indicates that believers' behavior should transcend the world. And it should transcend the world, not simply because we do more good things, but by the fact that as believers we do what those without Christ cannot do. What's impossible for those without Christ to do. That is, we love our enemies. That's what separates legalism, religiosity, from the righteousness of the kingdom. I know that I've mentioned Louis Zamperini probably more than I should, but his life is an example of this. At the end of his life, after he had become a believer, he flew to Japan as a World War II survivor. He flew to Japan, having been having spent many months in a concentration camp, a POW camp, severely tortured, singled out and persecuted by one particular commandant. And he flew to Japan to find this man and to express to the man that he had forgiven him for all the atrocities committed against him. You see, to love our enemies is radical. To love our enemies is revolutionary. But it's required. It is righteous. So I ask you this morning, who who is your enemy? Who is it that when you think about it, you really desire their demise? Or you delight in their difficulties? Or you wish that something bad would happen to them? Or their person that disagrees with you? You know, they're a person that when they walk into the room or you confront them to the face, just it's just the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you bristle or you just have this, oh, I don't like this person at all. Who is the person with whom we disagree? Who is this person 
that berates or belittles you, that puts you down, that always, you're the brunt of their jokes, maybe. Maybe they seek your harm. They're dishonest. I have to ask myself, have I, have I prayed for that person? And it's so easy. It just happens in a moment. You know, we get defensive. And if somebody confronts us or somebody's combative or somebody's disagreeable, boom. It doesn't take long for it to come to the surface, this animosity. Have we prayed for them? So there is this command that we should love our enemies. There are the consequences that we distinguish ourselves from the world and we demonstrate that we're like the Father. And finally, the final road sign is the conclusion regarding loving our enemies, which is given to us in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're supposed to treat others the way that God treats them. And how does God treat them? Well, he sends the rain, and he rises, causes the sun, but he also loved them enough to send his son Jesus. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. That what God did in sending his son was he provided a way for those people that deserved his wrath to be free from it. By this, the love of God was manifest in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. We might live through him. So if you're here this morning, listening, and the call is what? To love our enemies. And how do we do that? Well, first of all, we treat those we don't like as if we do. We treat those we don't like as if we do like them. That, that's the idea. Uh, that's a radical way of looking at it. It's not just we tolerate them, not just we put up with them. No, we treat them like we like them. We treat them and love them like ourselves. It's a conscious choice to pray for the unlovable, to pray for the critical, to pray for those who are antagonistic, those who are divisive. And I I'm the first one to stand here and say, God is working in my heart. I, I need this uh, in a big way for God's Spirit to work in my heart, to change me. And so there are four things I want to challenge you, I've been challenging myself with as a response. First of all, examine our lives. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God. And know me and try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So you just take some time. You say, God, search me. Who are those people that I, I really despise? You know, what if, I don't know about you, ever you drive down your, uh, drive down your street and you see political signs? What, what does it make you think about the people in those houses? If they have a sign of somebody you don't really like. Or they have, the, they have the little flag flying for the school that is the rival to the school that you support. Do you think differently about these people? Examine our hearts. They are not the enemy. <laughs> they may even be believers. But they're certainly not the enemy. And if they don't know Christ, they're, they're only victims of the enemy. So examine our hearts. Isn't it interesting that the righteousness of the kingdom highlights our spiritual bankruptcy and God's sovereignty? Who can here love your enemy and not find it a little bit, uh, oh, wow, that's, that's convicting. How, how far we're falling short. Who are the enemies we're failing to love? Some of us, it may be a family member, it may be a sibling. 
It may be your parents. It may be your children. It may be that coworker or a number of coworkers. It may be a rival at school. It may be a business partner. You know, this morning in James chapter uh, three, I was reading about you know jealousy and selfish ambition. Well, that competitiveness. You know, it's like I'm just being competitive. Yeah, well, that's because you wish ill of other people. I think it was R.C. Sproul. He said that golf is a game in which every shot delights someone. Now, why is that? You think about it. If I'm on the golf course and I hit a good shot, everybody else that's, that's playing with me is like, ugh, I wish he hadn't hit such a good shot. I mean, uh, that's kind of, and if I hit a bad shot, they're cheering internally. What's that about? So love our enemies. Examine our hearts. You see, the closer we get to God, the more he exposes our inadequacy. A few years ago, our middle daughter was playing high school basketball, and it was New Year's Eve, and so the parents of the basketball girls, we rented out the, one of the gyms at the school, and we were going to have a you know, party for the girls uh, that would be something healthy and helpful, and so some of us old guys whose daughters were playing on the varsity basketball team decided we'd, we'd take them on in a little pickup game, you know, and it's like... I was thinking, yeah, I'm not that old, you know, and I get out there, and, and it's amazing how my mind knew exactly what to do, but my body wouldn't follow. It's just, what is that about? I was realizing my own inadequacy. I read a text like this, love your enemies, and I realize my own inadequacy. Then express our repentance. You see, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we go to him, 1 John 1, 9. So let's go and say, Lord, I'm miserable at this. I need your grace and I need your help. Please forgive me. But there's no need for despair because in Christ we are complete. Express and enjoy God's mercy. Now after we express our repentance, we can enjoy God's mercy because what? In Christ, God has given us his righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, we have been redeemed, reconciled through his blood. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And so we have the power to overcome. We have in Christ his love, in Christ his forgiveness, in Christ righteousness. We fail to love as we should, but there is forgiveness. And finally, Let's exercise love. <laughs> That's the admonition here, is to love. He who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians 1.6. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation. Do something. Be about what God has called us to. So we need to take some steps. We're empowered to love. God enables what he requires. I remember hearing a missionary. He was a pastor. In a communist rule, I'm pretty sure his name was Joseph Tson, T-S-O-N. And I remember him telling about being tortured by his captors. And he would be taken into the room and he'd be tortured and he'd be beaten and they would take delight in it. And he would smile at them. And he would tell them, I forgive you. And he would be gracious to them. And he said to those of us gathered there, he said, here is the deal. When we are like a cup, and when the cup is, is, is 
battered and bruised and bumped around, what spills out? Is it love or is it hatred? Believers, my prayer is that more and more consistently the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of the kingdom would spill out as we submit ourselves to the Spirit's work. You may be here this morning and and you don't know Christ or you have rejected Christ and you're not even concerned or interested in Christ. You're a believer and everything I've said, you're saying, yeah, it only confirms, it's proven that Christians are frauds. See, they don't even love their enemies. They don't love those people who have different ideas. They don't love those people who have different thoughts and practices. Especially true in this day of a moral revolution when the Christians are the ones who are saying that certain people who believe in certain practices of sexuality and marriage and abortion, that those Christians are not loving. Okay, let me just say this. It is true that we as Christians fail to love our enemies perfectly as Christ has called us to love our enemies. And that is a damaging indictment on the cause of Christ. And I will say it. I would also say this. Don't look at us as the imperfect reflections of Christ, but look at Christ who is the perfect reflection of Christ as your standard. Secondly, I would say to you, don't confuse Christians' opposition to a particular belief or practice with Christians' hatred towards the people who believe or practice it. Just because somebody practices or believes something that we believe is contrary to the Word of God doesn't mean we hate the people. Think about it. Is it hateful or is it loving to tell a drug addict that if they perpetuate their practice of doing drugs and ODing, that they're going to kill themselves. I would say that's a loving thing to do. In the same way as believers, when we see people practicing and doing things that we know will result in their physical destruction and their eternal condemnation, when we warn them, that's not a hateful thing, that's a loving thing. Finally, I just ask you to look at your own life. Do you love your enemies? Or do you want to take them out? Do you want them to be hurt? Do you, want, do you delight in their demise? Do you delight in their harm? Do you wish them well? Do you treat them well? To the degree that you are not 100% consistent in doing that, you fall short of God's perfect standard. And that means that you deserve God's judgment. I don't want that for you. And other Christians don't want that for you. We don't want you to experience that. You know, down here in in Des Moines, if you drive down 73rd Street down to University, there's a bunch of construction on University if you tried to head east from 73rd Street. Well, there's construction there. There's a detour there or there's a, a, you know, can't get down one lane of traffic. You have to deal with it. As we all look at our lives and see that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we have to deal with it. And we can either ignore it, deny it, or redefine it, but ultimately we have to come to grips with it. And I would call you as a person who doesn't know Jesus to admit that you are one who doesn't, you fall short of God's standard in this way. And if you fall short of God's standard in this way, you fall short completely. And you deserve His judgment. And I don't want you to be there. And we don't want you to be there at Creekside Church. We want you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and accept His death as a payment for your sin so that you can become his child, and so that the the love of God towards you as his enemy will be 
experienced so that you can then express love of God towards your enemies. That's what God would want for you. Admit that you're a sinner, deserving of his wrath. Believe that in, in love, for you as an enemy, Jesus died in your place to pay your debt, the sin that you owe. Turn in faith and trust in Christ to receive forgiveness and surrender your life to him. This believing in Christ is not just, oh, I believed in Jesus, but it's a complete revolutionary change in our hearts of surrender to him. I can't possibly love my enemy until I have been loved as an enemy of Christ and of God through trusting in Christ. And today, as, as, we, as we close our service, I'm just going to introduce our time of communion. I'm going to let you know this, that his love, God's love for us as enemies is powerfully memorialized as we take the bread and the cup, which symbolize the death of the sinless Christ in the place of sinful people who deserve his judgment so that everyone who believes will escape God's wrath and gain eternal life. And so during the next few minutes, what I'd like you to do as the music plays, actually it's about a minute and a half of music, I'd like you to reflect on God's mercy towards you. What has he delivered you from? Or has he delivered you? I'd like you to rejoice in your identity if you're a child of God, that the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, his blood was shed, his body was broken, so that you could experience his love even though you're an enemy, so now you can express it. And if you don't know Christ, take this time to confess your sin, to call out to God and ask him to save your soul, to turn you from your sin and to trust in Christ. Take this time to reflect and rely upon the Spirit to do the work in you and to renew our commitment to love our enemies. And at the end of this time, I'm going to come back and I'll lead you in the taking of the bread and the cup. Son, thank you for loving us when we were enemies, alienated, hostile in mind, involved in evil deeds. You sent Jesus that he would die as the ultimate demonstration of enemy love, that we might be your children. And we take this bread as a reminder of his body which was broken so that we might live. Thank you, Father. Amen. Let me take the bread. invite you to pray with me as we prepare to drink the cup. Father, we drink this drink as a reminder of Christ's blood shed so that our sin might be upon him, that he would suffer and die in our place, that that which was causing our death would cause his death so that what enabled his life would be placed upon us, that great transfer, our sin to him, his righteousness to us. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us grace and strength, that we would seek your face and submit to your Spirit's leading, that we might be more consistent in reflecting the love of God towards his enemies that we have experienced by expressing love to our enemies. We take this cup in gratitude and as a reminder of your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. May you take the cup. just want to thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Again, a reminder, we'll have a partial reopening, so there'll be some folks in the seats next Sunday here at church. And we hope that if you're not able to make it, that you'll join us as we're online for our service, as we have been for the past several weeks, and will continue to be for your benefit and for the glory of God. Thanks for joining us. Have a great Mother's Day.